Our message today comes from the first six chapters of First Peter chapter, or first six verses of First Peter chapter four. But we'll start reading at chapter three, verse ten. So open your Bibles with me, please, to First Peter chapter three. We'll start at verse ten. But I want you to be thinking about something during the message today. If you could start over your life, what would your life be devoted to? Now, people often dream about this. They write books about this or movies about this. When you start over, start fresh, what would you do with your life differently this time? What would you want to accomplish? What would you want to be? Think about that as we read this passage and as we examine the first six verses of chapter 4 of 1 Peter. But first we'll start reading in 1 Peter 3. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is it to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when they slander, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is the will of God, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you not by the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh... The way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, 
be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracle of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that everything, in everything, God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these words of encouragement and for this call to live lives devoted to your will and to you. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider this matter, you would drill it into our hearts and help us, Lord, with your grace to live it in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 starts off talking about how we're going to live the rest of our life in God. He says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, that's a somewhat confusing statement, and there are various confusions surrounding it. But the point here is not that somehow suffering physically purifies you of your sins or makes you no longer a sinner. Uh, Many people suffer physically and continue in their sins, or they even increase their sins due to their suffering. Now think of Romans 1, that hard heart. The, the people, every time God punishes them and they suffer for their sin, they get more bitter, more angry, more harsh, and sin all the more in rebellion against God. Uh, think of those who curse God in, when they suffer, and they want to do something despite him. Not only do they blaspheme, but then they turn to more sin. And, of course, Christians in their backslidden state, sometimes live this way, where they live hard-hearted and the suffering God has given them for the consequence for their sin, instead of repenting of the discipline, they harden themselves for a while and continue in sin. Think of David, who endured for quite some time after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. The baby was born and growing before Nathan went to him and he repented. A lot of times this comes to us because our our values are wrong. We, We value the things of the earth more than the things of heaven. When we lose them, be it wealth or prestige or power or comfort, we start to sink it, seek it more earnestly. We want that. We've lost it. We're suffering not physically, but we're suffering with the lack of something we desire. And so we turn to sin to get what we want. A very sad state of affairs, but we're warned by Jesus where a treasure is there, our heart will be. And Paul tells us in Colossians 3, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of earth. For you have died and your life is hidden in Christ in God. When Christ is your life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is of your earthly nature. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. You know, we're warned to be careful of this ourselves. It's not just the unbelievers. But physical suffering doesn't make you stop sin necessarily, nor is Peter suggesting that it purifies of our sin. Yes, sometimes people come to repentance through their suffering. But also, sometimes people are embittered against God through their suffering, even the believers. To understand what Peter is saying when he says, the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, we need to look at the context that I just read, the context of First Peter, really the context of the whole Bible too, but especially what we've just read this morning in First Peter 3, 10 through 4, 11. We're told to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. What way of thinking? That Christ suffered for our sins to reconcile us to God. He spoke about that in chapter 3, verse 18. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the life. And so he suffered for our sins, yes, but he also suffered for the good that he did. Uh, Jesus went around doing good, healing people, teaching the truth, encouraging people who were faint, uh, giving them new life and new opportunity. And in John chapter 11, verse 45 and following, we read that after he had raised Lazarus from the dead, many of the Jews who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. Now, this was a good thing. He was taking care of his sisters. He's died. They're now alone. He's raised him from the dead. He can care for his family again. And what happens? Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. All of his signs were very good works. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Do you not understand that it is better for you that one man should die than for the people, not that the nation should perish? He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but for also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And Jesus no longer, therefore, walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to a region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with his disciples. And so all the good things that Jesus is doing have brought about the desire to murder him. He suffered for doing good. And that really was the prophecy of his whole life. In the Isaiah 53 prophecy about the coming of the Messiah He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave 
with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence and no deceit was found in his mouth. Uh, that was always prophesied for Jesus that he would suffer for doing good, but suffer for God's kingdom, God's will, God's glory. And that is what Peter is calling us to here, that thinking. Arm yourselves with the same thinking. First uh, Peter 3.17, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And he's telling us here to, you know, to live our lives for the will of God. If the will of God includes our suffering, then we should suffer willingly. <coughs> the author of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 12.3 that we should consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against themselves so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And we are called to arm ourselves with the thinking of Christ. He did not grow weary, but he persevered until the end, doing the will of God. And that is what Peter is talking about here. He's calling us to the will of God and to obedience to it. We should do good. We should obey God's word, even if it brings persecution, even if, if it brings suffering from being deprived of what we desire or need, even if we must put our needs, our wants, our desires second to God's will. We should arm ourselves with that thinking because that is what Christ did. Even in his death. Remember in the garden he prayed, if it be, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He lived and he died for the will of God. And that is what Peter is reminding us of here, to live our lives, not for the desires of the flesh, but according to the will of God. That is what we are to arm ourselves with in all the way to the end. So in our context, trying to understand this strange statement of he who has suffered is done from sin, we can see that whoever has suffered for doing good and continues to do good, and does not grow weary. Paul talks about that in Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Let us not grow weary from doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. And so if we suffer for doing good, and we continue to do good, and we continue to obey God in spite of the suffering it involves, then we have made a break with sin. Because it would be sin to abandon God and turn back to the world and say, I do not want to go down that path. Now that is sin. To try and get those things that are not in the will of God for us will lead to sin. And so what he's saying, we've made a break from sin if we're willing to do good to the point of suffering. He's not saying that it does something for us like purifies us or, or guarantees something in salvation for us, what he's saying is that if we are willing and able to do that, that we have broken with sin. And we can continue on. Now, clearly, ceased from sin here doesn't mean that we never sin again. Now, Christian perfectionism is refuted by many passages, especially 1 John 1, 8 and following. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You know, the believer continues to sin. What we're talking about here is breaking the devotion to sin. We have stopped living for sin and started living for Christ. And in that sense, the one who has willingly suffered for doing good, as Christ did, is one who's broken from sin and is now able to live the rest of their lives for the will of God. We struggle with this, but that is what he is calling us to. In verses 2 and 3, Peter goes on to explain the ceasing from sin by explaining that it results in a new life doing the will of God. That is the desire. This is the start of the new life when we are converted, when we are saved. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, asks, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace in which the sinner, being truly aware of his sinfulness, understands the mercy of God in Christ, grieves for and hates his sins, turns from them to God, intending and striving for a new obedience. It does not say achieving perfect obedience. It says striving for and desiring that obedience, a new obedience in our life. And so this, this, this new life, living for the will of God, really starts at salvation. We're in Christ's kingdom. We've talked about this many times. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. We are not in the old life anymore. We are not to live for the flesh, but we are to live for the will of God. Anyone who has been saved, who is in his kingdom, must walk as he did, First John 2, 6. Whoever abides, says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. As Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so we, we, are, we have this calling to a newness of life in Christ. And if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Second Corinthians five seventeen. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. If we are in Christ, we should have this new life. And as Peter says, not live for the flesh, but devote ourselves to the will of God. Now, when we do go to him in heaven, we will definitely never live for the flesh again. All sin and all desire for it will be behind us. But for now, this is the warfare that we fight. This desire to live for the will of God and forsake the sins of the flesh. This transformed life, this new life, is taught urgently throughout Scripture as something the Christian needs to have, needs to do. I always end the Romans road for somebody who wants to say they're a Christian with Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what Peter has in mind 
We have this new life. We have the scriptures. We have the desire and we seek the will of God in scripture and live according to that. Which means that each of us must stop living for our human passions. Whatever the flesh desires, the things of this world, we must turn away from those, the pride of life, and we must start living for the will of God. Now, I wanted to take a moment to remind you of some of these. I'm sure you've heard them too many times and have probably memorized them, but we need to think about them in this context. What does it mean to turn away from sin? What does it mean to live a life according to the will of God? Well, first, Paul asks the question in Romans 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6, 1 and following. And he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Important question. If we're still living in sin, did we die to it? If we didn't die to it, are we saved? We must be turning away from it, trying not to live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So if we have been saved, if we have a new life in Christ, we are dead to sin and must walk in that new life. In Romans 13, Paul continues, You know that the time... Besides, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality and quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And this is exactly what Peter is talking about in our passage today. Cease from sin, live the rest of the life, the rest of our time in the flesh, not for human passions, but for the will of God. And this idea is of taking off and putting on the new life we see in Ephesians four seventeen and through 24 as well. I say to you and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of your mind, their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality and greed and practice of every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self created after the likeness of God. So this idea is taught extensively in the New Testament and it is one of the most important things for the Christian that we put off the old life and put on the new, that we stop living to gratify the flesh that we stop living for this world and start living for Christ. Start living according to the will of God for heaven and for his glory. And we start doing the will of God. Now in this context, back in chapter 2, verse 15, 
He says, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In the context here, one of the main parts of the will of God that Peter is talking about is doing what is right in front of the godless so that they have no grounds to blaspheme, that they can be silenced. Paul calls us in Ephesians 4, which we looked at a while back, as a prisoner of the Lord, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You know, we are the kingdom of priests, as Peter has said. We, we are the representatives of God, the ministers of the new covenant, the ministers of reconciliation, we as Christians, as believers. And we are to walk in such a way that people do not despise that. That they do not say, oh, Christians are so horrible, I want to be a non-Christian. But that they see the truth in our lives because we are walking according to the will of God. And so by suffering for doing good, we can be done away with sin and we can actually live for the will of God. With respect to this, of course, they're surprised we do not join them in the flood of debauchery. You know, they're going to give an account to God. And that's where he turns his heart next. This is very prevalent in the current times. People do not understand why we are not joining them in this flood of debauchery. Sinful man thinks sin is good and God and his word are evil. We read this passage recently, but I will read it again. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We see this extensively in our world today. They hate what is good and love what is evil. We see it in racism and social justice. You know, the Bible says that there will be a great multitude in heaven that no one can number And they will be from every nation, all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the Lamb as believers. You know, there's no grounds for racism in this world, and yet we see it very extensively. They say one race is evil and has sinned. Some say it's the black race. Some say it's the white race or the white male. male. But this is not right before God. But they say it's good. They say that it's right to punish white males because we're the source of all evil in the world. Um, Seriously, people. But that's contrary to God. They say good is evil and evil is good. Uh, The Bible teaches that each of us is accountable for our own sin. Deuteronomy 24, 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. But each one shall be put to death for his own sin. In racism and in social justice, we see the opposite. No, the people we hate by their color of their skin, by their subgroup, by their gender and race, they're guilty of all the crimes, real and imagined, of all the other people of their race. Of course, we see this in the same thing, racism against African Americans. All African Americans are hated because of the crimes of some few. Uh, Both are equally sin and equally wrong. But they say it's good. It's good to punish people. We have affirmative action. We have social justice. 
We have the social gospel. But it's all wrong. And along those lines, socialism is now said to be good. Scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. They say, no, the one who does not work deserves the wages of the laborer. An equal share. Scripture says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. They say, no, half the food on your table needs to go to somebody who doesn't work. Because they have rights. Good is evil and evil is good. We see it with sexual deviancy of all forms. They say it's good. They teach it in school. They teach it in children's TV shows, all the way down to little toddlers trying to persuade them that all forms of perversion are better and that those who don't like perversion are evil. It's sad, but sin is sin. And they say it is good. We see it in idolatry in this nation and around the world where all religions are good except the religion of the Bible. Even Islam, which says they have to kill everyone who won't convert, that's a good religion. And Christianity that says sin is sin is a bad religion because good is evil and evil is good. You know, we see this in the lawlessness of our day. A Jew can be arrested for going to a funeral. A pastor can be arrested for preaching, yet Antifa is allowed to riot, yet criminal aliens are set free and hidden from the feds so they can't be deported for the crimes they've committed. Good is evil, and evil is good. Of course, all of these sins at times can also be placed on the under Christians. Christians are guilty of racism. They're guilty of all of these other crimes, They're guilty of living like the pagans lived and not living for the will of God. And we bring on blasphemy upon the name of Christ because of this. We need to stop living for those things and start living according to the will of God, living for the will of God, whatever it may lead us to. We have been warned in Romans 8, 12 through 14, that we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, then you will live. For all who live or are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And we are warned to stop living that way. But we do do it. We may not be guilty of all of those crimes, but some Christians are. And I think we can find those crimes in our own hearts at times. But his point here is that the godless just can't understand why we don't embrace their sin, why we don't love their sin, why we don't join them in their sin, why we don't call evil good and good evil. Psalm 15 says, Who shall dwell in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? That is where we want to be. We want to be in God's house. For all eternity, who can do it? He who walks blamelessly, who does what is right, speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes the vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest 
and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does all these things shall never be moved. Why don't we join them in their flood of dissipation, in their debauchery? Because we want to be with God forever. We will all give an account. And that is what Peter says here. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge. Men hate this idea. They reject this idea. Psalm 94, 7 through 9 says, These people say, The Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. They don't think he sees their sins. They don't think he cares about their sins. But verse 8 continues, Understand, O dullest of people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? God sees all of these things. But they don't care. And they pretend he does not. They say it is better to rule in hell than to serve God in heaven, which is, of course, absurd because nobody's ruling in hell. The lake of fire is just eternal torment day and night without rest forever and ever. There's no, there's no joy and happiness and ruling and glory there. But they hate God so much. Romans one twenty one. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They just spiral down out of control, hating God more and more. And that can't be us. God will judge them for despising us, for not joining them in their debauchery. But we also have to worry about the judgment ourselves. He will judge all. Acts 17 says in verse 31, He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Christ will one day come and judge the world. And it is given to all men to die once and after that comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27 The day of judgment will come for them. We should not be afraid. We should not be worried about their rage and their hatred and their persecution. We should not be worried about what we lose by following Christ. Because the day of judgment will come. They will get what's theirs and we will get what's ours. And we should be focused on our self, our own life, what we're doing, how we are living. This is a great encouragement to us to live for the will of God. Knowing that the judgment will come. What would we rather have him say? Well done, my good and faithful servant, Acts 25, or Matthew 25, 21. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Or do we want to be the one Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 and following? Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Which believer do we want to be? The well done and good and faithful servant or the one who shows up there with nothing, having lost everything to the fire? Where our treasure is, what treasure do we have? Is it in heaven waiting for us? 
Or will it, is it here on earth and will it be burned up and destroyed? Also, he points out that this gospel call of repentance in verse 6 is to all. The gospel was preached to those who was dead. We talked about this before. And we'll talk about it again now. But Peter has already said back in chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from deceit. Let him turn from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. We saw last week that this preaching of the gospel to all was not Christ going into hell and preaching to dead people and saving some of them. Uh, Once you're dead, you have no further choice, no further hope, no further opportunity for salvation. But what he's saying is the gospel was preached to those who were dead before Christ came because it has been known all the way back to the beginning of time, to the beginning of sin. The preaching to those who were dead was done while they were alive. And remember we read last week that it was preached to those while God was being patient in the flood and those who believed were saved through the flood, through the waters, through the the baptism of the great flood in the ark. And so we shouldn't get confused about that. He's just saying that the gospel is the gospel for all time. There wasn't a different way of salvation in the Old Testament before Christ and a new way in the New Testament. They had Christ revealed to them from Adam on and the gospel was preached to them even though they were dead before Christ came. Uh, The purpose of this preaching we see in this passage in verse 6 is that they might live in the Spirit. He's talking about how we live our life in this flesh in verse 1 and 2, living it for God or living it for sensuality and sin. And he's saying the purpose of the preaching of the gospel was that they they might live in the spirit, live the rest of their time in their life, not for the flesh, but for God and for the will of God. That's his point in this whole section. To that we have been called. So I asked in the beginning, if you'd start over, what would you devote your life to? Well, when we are saved, we start over. We have a new life in Christ. The old life is dead and buried in its sin. And we've been raised into the, the new life of God, the new life of Christ. Are we going to devote ourselves in that life to living for the will of God? To doing the will of God, no matter what the cost. Whether it means we are persecuted or whether it means we have to give up some of the things we enjoy in life. That's the call here of Peter, to live our lives devoted to doing the will of God. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know, Lord, that at times we do struggle with this, to live our life for you, because there are things we want, there are things we desire, the things we see that all others have. And sometimes we are tempted to want them and to sin and to turn from you toward seeking those things. And we pray that you would strengthen us and remind us always to live our new life for your will, according to your will, doing what you will in Scripture. 
that we might receive our reward from there. And help us, Lord, to have a hope in that reward that Peter has spoken about, about that reward that is kept safe for us in heaven, that cannot be harmed by moth or rust or thief, but will always be there, held by us, held for us by Christ himself. And so lift our hearts and encourage us to live no matter what the suffering, for your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.